Welcome to Single Malt History with Gareth Russell, pouring out your serving of pure, distilled, intoxicating, and occasionally delicious history. August Venestrom did not have much time for Sundays, or at least not what they represented. Society in 1912 was still overwhelmingly religious, and on British ships in particular, the Sunday Sabbath was a quieter, more reflective day. As an atheist and a socialist, Venestrom was strongly opposed to more traditional values, to the extent that he was willing to suffer for his beliefs and occasionally to inflict suffering for them. That was why he was emigrating from his native Sweden on board the Titanic. A journalist by trade, Venestrom had written a series of articles calling for the abolition of the Swedish monarchy, but he had badly misjudged the public mood when he followed that up with a notorious article that launched a personal attack on Sweden's recently dead king, Oscar II. Even some fellow Republicans were uncomfortable with the sheer vitriol of Venestrom's article about the late king, and Swedish royalists were perhaps predictably outraged. Public pressure mounted on the newspaper to fire Venestrom, and he had eventually left Sweden for a new life in America via Denmark, England, and then the Titanic. Venestrom was not even his real name. To escape the unwelcome publicity, he changed it from Anderson. Christianity ranked second only to monarchy as a target for the 27-year-old Venestrom's rage, and so he cannot have been overly impressed when he saw two Catholic priests enter third class on Sunday morning with the offer to celebrate Mass for Catholic passengers in the general room, third class's main socialising hub. Sunday, April the 14th, was the octave of Easter, the point in the liturgical calendar that marks the end of the eight-day Easter week. The two priests, 41-year-old Father Josef Perischitz from Bavaria in southern Germany, and 42-year-old Yorkshire man Father Thomas Biles, were travelling in second class, where they had just celebrated Mass in the library. It was highly unusual for any second-class passengers to be allowed into third class due to strict American immigration laws, but the two priests seemingly had negotiated with the Titanic's purser, who was perhaps prepared to be flexible because it was, as the octave of Easter, a day of religious significance in the Christian calendar. In 1912, the Catholic Mass was still celebrated universally in Latin, a custom which was only changed by the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s. Since then, there's a certain smugness, I think, in the assumption that the Mass in Latin was or is axiomatically absurd, a spectacularly useless relic from the Middle Ages. But it's my own opinion that not all that is old is obsolete. The Mass in Latin had a particular benefit by being in a language tied to no nation, 
So rather than being accessible to nobody, Latin religious services were equally inclusive of everybody because it meant, for instance, that fathers parachutes and biles could offer mass that Sunday morning in the general room and it was the mass that every third-class passenger of the Catholic faith would have been familiar with as the mass they heard at home on land. So, it was a matter of spiritual convenience and hope, and it meant that the mass could be enjoyed by the Titanic's Catholic passengers, who included native speakers of German, Magyar, English, French, Italian, and Portuguese. As the two priests had celebrated Mass earlier in the second-class library, Protestant passengers on the Titanic had attended a short Sunday morning service in the dining saloons. In first class, this was led by the captain, in second by the purser. Afterwards, passengers prepared to brave the cold on deck for a stroll noticed that the temperature had dropped even further, and the White Star Line's managing director, Bruce Ismay, mentioned to friends on board that Captain Smith thought they would reach an ice field later that night. Something that was confirmed by warning telegrams sent to the Titanic by nearby passenger ships, including the Baltic, also owned by White Star, and the America, a German luxury liner. Another ice warning from the Cunard line ship Coronia was already pinned to a chart on the bridge, which is the area from which a ship is commanded and steered. More ice warnings would arrive that evening as the sun set gloriously into the Atlantic and Captain Smith attended a dinner party thrown in his honour in the first-class restaurant. His hosts were two wealthy Philadelphians, Eleanor and George Widener, the captain's usual dining companions, Marion, and her railway tycoon husband, John Thayer, were also invited, as was the American president's most trusted adviser, Major Archibald Butt, and there was another presidential connection at the table, in the person of the strikingly beautiful socialite Lucille Carter, a direct descendant of President James Polk. Although it was later claimed that the captain got drunk at his dinner party, this is categorically denied by every eyewitness, even diners at separate tables in the restaurant, who queried other details of that evening. The Titanic, like most ships at the time, operated a kind of curfew as public rooms closed. At 11.30 that night, Stewards politely asked a few passengers to finish up their game of bridge in the first-class lounge because it was closing time. The lights were turned out, the doors closed. Elsewhere on the same deck, the smoking room was the only first-class public room still open. Three decks below, the reception room was tidied by crew members, removing the coffee and teacups passengers used as they had listened to the after-dinner music. Next door... Stewards prepared the dining saloon for the next morning's breakfast. In third class, 29-year-old Bernd Johansson, a former soldier in the Norwegian army, was changing into his pyjamas for bed. In second class, schoolteacher Lawrence Beasley read in his cosy cabin on D-deck. In first class, the Countess of Rothes was already asleep in her splendid Georgian-style stateroom. 
Outside, the Titanic cut through some of the calmest ocean water some of her crew had ever seen. There was no breeze and there was no moon. The stars, however, were remembered by dozens of eyewitnesses for their sheer visible number and beauty that night. But even their proliferation could not compensate for the lack of moonlight or breeze, which might have shone a light on the iceberg sooner or churned the sea enough that a visible white rim would have encircled the base of the iceberg as waves broke against it. There were neither of those things. Instead, about 20 minutes before midnight, the two men in the lookout's post, the crow's nest, rang their warning bell three times and then telephoned the bridge from the crow's nest to say that there was an iceberg directly in the ship's path. The senior officer on duty, First Officer William Murdoch, a 39-year-old Scotsman, ordered Quartermaster Robert Hitchens to go hard to starboard to try to avoid the berg. Hitchens took the 10 seconds or so expected to slam the ship's wheel counterclockwise, supervised by Murdoch's junior colleague for that shift, 24-year-old 6th officer James Moody. It almost worked. Up in the crow's nest, one of the lookouts thought it seemed almost as if she might clear it. But then part of the iceberg made contact with the ship's starboard, opening her to the Atlantic Ocean, at which point Officer Murdoch ordered the closing of the Titanic subterranean watertight doors. It was a horrible moment, hideous to imagine. Although I can offer one qualifying piece of more positive information, which is that despite the famous and gruesome insinuations of several movies about the sinking, none of the Titanic's strokers were trapped or maimed as the watertight doors had slid electronically into place after the collision. After the doors had shut, the crew were able to make their way up ladders to metal gates in the roof, which they escaped through and then tightly resealed. For the passengers, however, it was a very different experience. A few of the gentlemen smoking or playing cards in the first-class smoking room claimed later they'd actually seen the towering iceberg sweep past their view as the Titanic steamed past it, but that was the exception for passengers, not the rule. The shudder as the iceberg ruptured the Titanic was so slight that hundreds of passengers slept through it. In his C-deck suite, young Jack Thayer was standing next to his bed about to climb in, and he said that if he had been holding a glass full to the brim with water in his hand when the iceberg hit, he didn't think the nudge was big enough to have caused him to spill a single drop. A few doors down, the Countess of Rothes groggily woke up at the strange noise, but she then almost immediately dozed back off to sleep. A deck below, steward setting up for breakfast, thought that maybe something had gone wrong with one of the propeller blades, a thought that crossed the mind of Lawrence Beasley in his second-class cabin. When he summoned a steward, he was told there was nothing to worry about. The cabins furthest away from the point of impact were those in third class, occupied by women or families. 
To guard against sexual harassment of female passengers, the White Star Line located single male third-class ticket holders at cabins in the bow or front section of the ship, separated by long corridors from the cabins occupied by women and families. At night, iron gates were closed in those corridors to prevent sexual predators sneaking to the women's accommodation. It is perhaps unsurprising, therefore, that the women, children and families in third class felt even less by way of impact than some of those in first class, most of which was located midship. A testimony from a 16-year-old Irish immigrant, Katie Gilna, travelling in third class, is read for us today by Irish actress Deborah Hill. I was in steerage. Well, third class, they called it. And I was in bed... And then a young man knocked on the cabin door, and he told me there was some trouble with the ship. I was sixteen going on seventeen. I would be seventeen that October. And then I went up on deck, but we were told to go back down because there was a piece of ice on the deck, and once they got that off, everything would be all right. We were told to go down and go back to bed. A few curious passengers like Katie Gilna had gone up on deck to see what had happened. Some of her fellow third-class passengers were actually playing a game of football with bits of ice that had fallen onto the deck. Having continued to steam forward at about half speed for close to 15 minutes after the collision, the Titanic's engines had finally stopped on the orders of Captain Smith, who also had the ship's designer, Thomas Andrews, fetched from his cabin on A-deck with the request that he give the captain a report on the damage. On G-deck, Thomas Andrews got his first glimpse that shook his confidence. Mail clerks were out of bed and trying to drag sacks of letters and postcards from the corners of the mail room where icy seawater was already creeping in. Next door, there was nothing they could do for the heavy suitcases and trunks in the slowly flooding first-class luggage room. In the boiler rooms, Andrews found stokers bravely back at their stations trying to dampen down the fires while pumps were brought in to tackle the water. From what he saw, Andrews realised with shuddering horror that five of the Titanic's forward boiler rooms were now flooding. Guessing that it was either a gash of about 300 feet or a series of tears below the waterline, he returned up to find the captain. What went through Thomas Andrews' mind as he returned past the struggling postal clerks? Through the empty, first-class reception room, he continued his journey, passing its Steinway piano, its tapestries and the electric candelabra at the base of its stairwell that led him up to C-deck, then B, and from there to A, where the chandelier illuminated the great glass dome above the grand staircase with its torch-clutching cherub. There, he saw passengers eager to ask him questions that he could barely find the voice to answer and which he could not properly do so until he had delivered the death sentence news to Captain Smith. 
Movie star and model Dorothy Gibson, still in the evening gown she'd worn to dinner that night, tried to ask him what was wrong. He wouldn't answer, but Dorothy was struck by the fact that the Titanic's designer looked green, sickly, pale with worry. Eleanor Caspier, emerging in her silk kimono dressing gown, saw Andrews go past too. Andrews told Captain Smith the devastating news that nearly one third of the Titanic had been torn open to the ocean. She had, he estimated, about 90 minutes to live. As events were to prove, Thomas Andrews may have underestimated the strength of his own ship because she lasted very nearly twice that length of time. But given the scale of the damage, it is hard to fault him for erring on the side of pulverising caution. He was also making a guess based on the scale of the flooding he had seen below decks, which fairly obviously meant he couldn't precisely see the tear or tears. Thanks to the discovery of the Titanic's wreck in the 1980s and modern sonar technology, we now know more about the fatal injuries than Thomas Andrews did that night. There was a small trace wound near the prow, followed by punctures of about 5 feet, then 6, then 16, then further aft and slightly lower, 33 feet, and finally the only one visible to submersibles today, a gash off 45 feet. The others have been covered up by sediment after the Titanic ploughed, sort of bow first, into the seabed when it sank. The width of the wounds has never been determined, but since each puncture is likely to have buckled or distended further when the ship slammed onto the seafloor, it now most likely never will be. As the 14th of April slipped unobtrusively to the 15th, Andrews told his captain of the boiler rooms below, Well, three have gone already, Captain. It was, quite simply, brutal mathematical certainty that having been designed to float with four but not five of the watertight compartments flooded, the gathering water would pull the bow down until the seawater spilled over into the next bulkhead, and so on and so forth, until the Titanic sank by the head. To avoid panic, Captain Smith made the decision not to inform passengers, or even the majority of his crew, that the situation was fatal. The lifeboats would be uncovered, swung out and filled. But there was to be no sense of urgency which might lead to panic. Passengers were awoken from their beds by stewards and stewardesses going from door to door, some of whom didn't even know where the life belts were stored. Apparently completely ill-informed of the seriousness of the situation, the purser ordered that the first-class lounge be reopened. Hot cocoa and brandy were served as first-class passengers arrived, entertained in the lounge, as the ship's band broke into waltzes and ragtime, hoping to drown out the terrible industrial screams from outside as escaping boiler room steam roared seemingly through the Titanic's enormous funnels. The author, Helen Churchill Candy, thought the scene in the lounge looked like a fancy dress ball in Dante's Inferno, while publishing heir Henry Harper arrived in towering bad form at being awoken in the middle of the night while he recovered from tonsillitis. And he was far less complimentary. He thought the lounge resembled a stupid, ill-organised picnic filled with people you couldn't wait to get away from. 
Some passengers wore their cork-filled life belts, others didn't. Some had thrown fur coats on over their dinner jackets. Some, like sisters Martha Stevenson and Elizabeth Eustace travelling home to America together, arrived in the lounge wearing sensible warm suits, the kind they might wear for a post-breakfast walk. Marion Thayer wanted to fetch a proper thick sweater for their 17-year-old son Jack, who was cheerfully introducing his parents to his new shipboard friend Milton Long, a judge's son from Massachusetts who he'd met over post-dinner coffee earlier that night. For some first-class passengers, this drill, and they really do seem to have been left to regard it as such, was an overreaction in staggering poor taste, considering what some of the first-class travellers were dealing with. Renee Harris, the Broadway producer's wife, still had her arm in a sling after she had slipped and fallen on the grand staircase earlier that day. Why was she being physically inconvenienced when she should be resting? To say nothing of dragging up on deck, poor Leila Mayer, one of the heiresses to the Saks department store fortune, who was in mourning as she returned to America for her father's funeral. The Ryerson family surely shouldn't have been bothered with all this, since they had kept to their suite for most of the voyage. They were travelling home in particularly heartbreaking circumstances after receiving news that their eldest son had been killed in a car accident during his Easter holiday from studies at Yale. What possible justification could there be for forcing them towards lifeboats when the ship was clearly in no significant danger? This in part is one of the reasons why so many of the Titanic's lifeboats left half empty. The officers in charge of lowering them initially couldn't find enough people willing to leave the apparently stable Titanic to go boating in the Atlantic in the dead of night in a tiny wooden craft. Colonel Astor, for instance, point-blank refused to put his pregnant wife Madeline in the lifeboats when asked preferring to keep her warm and safe on the Titanic. But there were other passengers, a minority, who knew otherwise. One of whom was our aforementioned movie star Dorothy Gibson, who was evacuated in the first lifeboat to leave the Titanic, and she did so in a panic, throwing a cardigan on over her dinner dress, to brave a night sitting in sub-freezing temperatures in the Atlantic air. Why? Well, she had overheard a crew member whispering that water had already started to spill into the first-class squash courts. So Dorothy had no interest in the cosy concert in the lounge. She wanted off the Titanic as soon as was humanly possible. What did Dorothy see when she emerged out on deck during the early evacuation. Well, to give you an idea of the lifeboats that will form such a crucial if tragic crucible in today's podcast and tomorrow's, permit me to describe what they were like and how they were set up. The Titanic had 20 lifeboats, about one-fifth more than she was legally required to carry. They were all located on the boat deck, bar four emergency craft called the collapsibles which were tied to the roof of the officers quarters near to the ship's first two funnels those collapsible boats were designated by letters a b c d 
while the proper wooden lifeboats were numbered. The odd numbers of 13579, 11, 13 and 15 were located on the starboard side of the Titanic. The even-numbered lifeboats were on the port side. They were not stacked atop one another, but arranged in horizontal groups of four, with a gap for railings and walking space for passengers. It is also important to note that these lifeboats were not lowered in numerical order. The first to leave was the starboard side's number seven, uncovered around the same time as her neighbours three and five. The officer in charge of those was First Officer William Murdoch, and he could not find enough people eager to enter number seven, so he certainly saw no reason to prioritise women over men. Dorothy Gibson got in, grabbing the arm of her friend, stockbroker William Sloper, who Murdoch allowed to join her in the lifeboat, along with her mother, and another friend, lawyer Frederick Seward. A French aviator and a Dutch car salesman, still pretending to be a German aristocrat, stepped in. An American socialite was allowed to bring her dog, a Pomeranian with the Moira Rose-accented name of Bebe, and I'm not joking, it's B-E-acute, B-E-acute. So uh, the Pomeranian Bebe climbed in. Murdoch offered to let an American businessman accompany his pregnant wife as she was evacuated into the lifeboats, which he accepted, although the same offer, as mentioned, was fatally rejected by Colonel Astor. As Dorothy Gibson left the Titanic as one of the 28 people in a lifeboat that had room for 65 Smaller signs of a shifting attitude were playing out on the ocean liner's decks. Bruce Ismay, one of the few to know that the Titanic was doomed, could not understand why the lifeboats weren't being filled to capacity and why they were being lowered with no sense of urgency. Trying to help the officers with the lifeboats, Ismay began to nag the crew until 3rd Officer Herbert Pittman publicly snapped at him, later claiming, not entirely convincingly, that he didn't know who he'd been shouting at. Passengers weren't to know that the Titanic's two wireless operators were frantically sending distress messages to see if there was any ship nearby to reach them in time for a rescue. But when white distress rockets soared into the star-cluttered sky above the Titanic, there was a perceptible change in mood. Suddenly, there was more interest in getting into the lifeboats, although even at this stage, many passengers were still chatting about the sinking of the ocean liner Republic a few years earlier, when it had taken nine hours to sink and more or less everyone had been safely evacuated. The only casualties then had been people killed during the initial collision. Everyone after that was safely moved off the Republic before it sank. So they certainly didn't think the much larger Titanic would be a greater risk. On the port side, during the evacuation, 2nd Officer Charles Lightoller was much more stringently enforcing the women and children first rule. Gathered on the deck near to the entrance to the grand staircase, he was preparing to fill boats six and eight with people that included the Countess of Rothes and Ida Strauss, elderly wife of ex-congressman Isidore Strauss. The Countess's words are read for us by Rebecca Lenehan. Huge white rockets were flaring up. 
Everyone was marshalled into lines, and a good many of the boats had gone. I still felt it might be a frightful dream, and then I saw a very young couple of Spanish honeymooners who I had noticed before. They could not speak any English and were terrified, so I went out of the line for the boats and spoke with them in French, and he begged me to take his wife with me, so of course I did, and eventually I got her into boat aid with me. Before I got into the boat, I heard a woman say, I'm not going without my husband. She was Mrs. Strauss, and though we all begged her to get into the boat, she refused and went back to join her husband. Mrs. Strauss would not leave her husband, and when an exception was offered to let Mr. Strauss board a lifeboat on account of his advanced age, he said it would be dishonourable to leave before the other men. No, he replied, I do not wish any distinction in my favour which is not granted to others, to which Mrs. Strauss smiled and said, We have lived together for many years, where you go, I go. The Countess of Rothes was distressed by Mrs. Strauss's decision to stay, but she also respected it. The young honeymooners that the Countess had offered to help were the Prime Minister of Spain's nephew and his wife Maria Josefa, who was hysterical, as the Countess persuaded her to join her in the lifeboat, per the groom's request. Comforting Maria Josefa, the Countess of Rothes was joined in the lifeboat by her own maid, Sissy Mayone, and by her travelling companion, Gladys. Gladys Cherry was the Earl of Rothes's cousin, a British socialite. She was travelling to New York to visit her brother Charles, who lived there. Gladys's account of leaving the Titanic helps give us an idea of why so many people had been reluctant to get in the lifeboats, as well as the view they could only appreciate once they left. Gladys's words are read by actress Marianne McGuire. The lowering of that lifeboat, 75 feet into the darkness, seemed too awful. When we reached the water, I felt we had done a foolish thing to leave that big, safe boat. But when we had rowed a few yards, we saw that great ship with her head right down in the water. We heard later that even before we had dressed for the lifeboats, water was already pouring into the racket court and baggage rooms. It was the stillest night possible. Not a ripple in the water, and the stars, wonderful. That icy air and the stars I never want to see or feel again. Thank you so much to Deborah Hill, Rebecca Lenehan and Marianne McGuire for bringing to life the words of Titanic passengers Katie Gilna, the Countess of Rothes and Gladys Cherry in today's episode. I'd also like to thank Mike Poirier and Randy Brian Bigham, who were more than willing to have me bounce some ideas off them and ask questions in the run-up to anniversary week. As always, they've been nothing short of wonderful. Please join us for tomorrow's podcast when I'll be discussing the terrible events as the Titanic's last lifeboats left, what really happened in third class during the evacuation, and those horrible final moments of the sinking. Thank you so much for your time and please enjoy the rest of your day.